It's Friday. We made it through the week without Lauren, without a whole bunch of people who are on vacation. I didn't know if we were going to do that when the week began. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Courtney Estafi, and Layla Atassi. Layla, I believe you're taking off next week, right? Uh, yeah. I certainly <laughs> hope you, so. Since you... You bullied me into it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you need to take your breaks. You haven't taken enough. I'm glad you're doing it. So, Courtney, we will enjoy your company for another week. Wonderful. This is the, this is the first Courtney's hearing about it, yeah, I think. Yeah, you're breaking the news to me on, on the podcast. <laughs> okay. Well, something for everybody to look forward to, including Layla. I hope you have a good time. Let's begin. <laughs> Cuyahoga County Executive Candidate Chris Ronane made a bold proposal in response to the decision to all but close two hospitals in Bedford and Richmond Heights. It could have big ramifications. What's he want to do, Layla? Well, so to improve access, equity, and fairness in health care, especially in, in impoverished communities, Chris Ronane, the Democratic candidate for county executive, is proposing the creation of what's known as a Community Health Equity Fund. Under this model, which is apparently used in several other major cities, including Boston, Baltimore, and Pittsburgh, private hospitals like Cleveland Clinic and University Hospitals would pay into the fund to help these communities provide residents more options for transportation to appointments and and to create new wellness programs or to bolster mental health and physical health services. And this would be supported by a payment in lieu of taxes agreement with the nonprofit hospitals. The hospitals own more than $750 million in county property. Under the agreement, they would pay 35% of their property value into the account. So, for example, say University Hospitals and Cleveland Clinic own a combined $3.2 billion in property, all of which is tax exempt. Those hospitals are saving about $112 million in property taxes that would otherwise go to schools and parks and local government spending. But if the hospitals were willing to give 35% of their savings to the new equity fund, it could generate up to $39 million a year for community health programs or to supplement municipal budgets that are most impacted by consolidations of hospitals, regional hospitals and closures and things like that. So Chris Renane is saying, you know, their incentive to participate, I mean, they're obviously not forced to participate, but the incentive is that the public is increasingly pressuring these hospitals to do the right thing with their money and to help offset the inequities in healthcare. But already, UH has kind of boxed at this idea. Yeah. Their spokesperson yesterday told Caitlin, well, you know, the hospital's already contributed $3.2 you know, billion dollars over the past decade in community benefit yeah, for a bunch of things. They and, claim that, so. but it's it's almost impossible to actually see. This is a movement that has been going on elsewhere for a long time. And and there have been attempts made to get the hospitals to pay their due. The the trigger here is university hospitals summarily shutting down in Bedford and, and Richmond Heights, which, you know, there's a now an effort to stop it in the courts. But but the other thing is they're nonprofits but they have boatloads of money. I mean, the way a nonprofit's supposed to work is they're supposed to invest the what would be profit if they were a for-profit company into the cause. But they have tons. The Cleveland Clinic has got billions of dollars, and they don't contribute. I mean, they've been held up every year. They rate as one of the worst in the nation for giving back. And even though they're not required to do this now, you can always change laws to require them to do it. 
And I think what Chris Renane is going to do is use the power of the pulpit to force them to the table to negotiate something that that people are tired of this. Look, we're talking about Richmond Heights and Bedford, but Lakewood had the same thing. Lakewood, when Cleveland Clinic shut down there, there was there was hell to pay and there still are hurt feelings there. So it's going to be very popular with the voters, if not with the hospitals. Yeah, that's true. I mean, the plan was kind of short on detail about what the money could be spent on that would improve health or access to it. You know, Caitlin asked him if if it could pay medical bills, for example, and he said he he doesn't want to be too prescriptive because the board would decide. But, you know, Caitlin pointed out to me, transportation to appointments only helps if you can afford the copay or the bill afterward, right? So um, he also stressed that, you know, he, he, want, he would want to give money to the communities to supplement what they lose from their budgets when health centers close. But do cities get to do whatever they want with that money? So all of that stuff would have to shake out. And, and you know, we need to see more detail about this. But obviously, you know, Chris Renate needs to be elected. You know, this that's this is this is just he's he's floating this idea. So we're we're on the very front end front end of this uh, this this thought. Well, but and it could have and, and we could always look at how it works in other you know places like Pittsburgh and you know Baltimore. We could see how it how it plays there and um, how successful it is. That would be an interesting idea. Other nonprofits might be nervous about this because there's lots of nonprofits that don't pay taxes on their land, universities and things like that. But I don't think any of them traffic in the amounts of cash that the clinic and the UH do. You know, the other thing they could do is they could take that money and provide free care at the county hospital, the public hospital, the one that is not flush with cash like they are and help people get care at Metro Health. Anyway, it's a dramatic proposal. It's a bold proposal. It's good to see something like that coming from one of the candidates for this job. One of either he or Lee Weingart will be in that office come January. It's Today in Ohio. The nationwide narrative by Republicans is that cities are hotbeds of crime because of the liberals running them and they're defunding the police, which is not happening. How does a new Cleveland crime report debunk the narrative, Courtney? Well, to, to be honest, I'm not sure if it does completely debunk that narrative, but what we did find in the mid-year release of Cleveland police statistics is that arrests are down in the first six months of 2022 compared to the same period last year. Arrests on weapon charges are down 51% in the same period. 49% fewer guns were confiscated. But those are arrests and not necessarily reports of crime. We know that there's been an understaffing issue on Cleveland police. And we also know the group that does the most, uh, you know, gun confiscations and weapons charges, the gang unit, was under federal investigation for a big part of this year. So they were a little occupied. Yeah, but, but, but I, we also have crime reporting that gives you an indication of what's going on. Yes, and that's kind of where it's important to look at the numbers, um, homicides, rape, robberies, where we're at. Homicides, the crime report says that we are a little lower than where we were at this time last year, but still we're above, well above where we were from 2012 to 2020. Um, you know, we see that robberies and grand theft of motor vehicles held steady this year over the same period last year. It's notable the statistics say rapes and felonious assaults are down about 17% from the same period of last year. Calls for service are on pace to come in a little under 
last year's full year total. So it does seem like the numbers are indicating a small drop here, but in several categories, we are still above the pre-pandemic normal. And I think it's also worth noting, we know Cleveland's crime statistics, particularly around homicides, aren't aren't the best, most accurate numbers. For example, through June, this report says there were 70 homicides in 2022 versus 86 in the same period of last year and 62 in 2020. But in, in a different crime statistics report that the city puts out that reflects the number from the same period, it listed 80 homicides. So you got to take the numbers with a little bit of a grain of salt, although they do perhaps indicate a trend of a slight downturn of that pandemic crime. Yeah, but I, homicides aren't really, I think, the thing that people worry most about. I mean, they're, we're talking triple digits in any given year. It's the thefts. It's the robberies. The, the, the much higher number of crimes give you a better indication of where we stand. And it seems like with property crimes in particular and some of the other categories, it, it's not it's not blowing up the way some would have you believe it's down slightly and not rising all that much in others. Yeah. It appears that we are tapering off perhaps from that 2021 pandemic. high. You're listening to today in Ohio. We've received records showing an unprecedented glimpse of the conversations that First Energy CEO Chuck Jones was having with others in the months leading to the passage of corrupt House Bill 6, which was forged with $60 million in bribes by the utility Jones then led First Energy. John Houston features prominently, Elisa. What did these conversations reveal? Yeah, this was a series of text messages that was unearthed by the Office of Ohio Consumers Council. They subpoenaed, you know, the texts of current and former First Energy executives, including CEO Chuck Jones and Mike Dowling. So there was a series of texts in July 2019 where Mike Dowling said that he had a talk with Lieutenant Governor John Houston about extending the House Bill 6 nuclear plant bailout to 10 years. It ended up, before it was repealed, it ended up being seven years at $150 million a year through 2027. And then... uh Chuck Jones texted texted another executive 16 days later saying that Husted and Sam Randazzo were fighting to the end for the extension. A Husted spokeswoman, Haley Carducci, says there's nothing new here, that saving nuke plants was a priority and within his duties as a public official. But when Husted was asked last November about his role in passing House Bill 6, he said he had no role in passing it. What people should remember is that First Energy had sought to get this thing done for years. And under previous administrations, it was blocked. They weren't getting anywhere in the House. They weren't getting anywhere with John Kasich. Mike DeWine and John Houston came in, and it was almost like they were in the pocket of First Energy. They were working so hard to help them get what turned out to be the most corrupt deal in the history of the state. So th- this, it th- this doesn't incriminate them in any way. Nobody is accusing them of taking bribes, but it shows they weren't working on behalf of Ohioans. They were working on behalf of the utility and not even questioning the deal. There were lots of questions being raised about this. That's why John Kasich did not go with it. It's why the previous legislatures had said we're not doing it. And these guys could not do enough to help. And for Houston to 
to have said he had no role when he clearly was working his butt off to help this utility out. It looks bad. He just looks like he doesn't represent Ohioans. He represents business interests that contribute to campaigns. And if they had extended it to 10 years like they were trying to do, that would have cost, you know, ratepayers another $450 million. So this ain't chump change at all. Yeah, they, they Houston and DeWine seem like they've been coated with Teflon on this. It's not sticking to them, but they had a huge role in pushing this along, not for the benefit of us, for the benefit of First Energy. It's good stuff. Check out the story. It's on Cleveland.com. What is the logic Cuyahoga County's elected officials are using to justify their claim that the county has plenty of borrowing capacity for major projects on its plate? Layla, what are they wearing? Tinfoil hats here? <laughs> well, the county already is one and a half billion dollars in debt, and they're considering borrowing another 580 million. And they say the county can afford it. As long as you and I and our fellow taxpayers continue paying the bill for all this. So the county's debt capacity came up at, at meetings while they were discussing borrowing $31 million for the, the Global Center boondoggle. And county council members were kind of like, well, well, wait a minute. If we, if we borrow this, will we still be able to borrow for the jail that everyone says we need to build? And the county's financial advisor, Bob Franz, was like, well, don't, don't sweat it. The county, you know, right now has the ability to borrow a combined $2.3 billion on top of its existing debt. That's across the county's three main lines of credit, general obligation bonds, tax revenue bonds, and non-tax economic development bonds. Charging against one of those lines, he said, doesn't impact the others. And something like the jail project is likely to be funded through general obligation bonds, which depend on the county's credit worthiness and ability to raise money for repayment, usually by raising taxes. So that fund could theoretically support another $1.2 billion. That said, Franz and Michael Chambers, who's the county's f chief fiscal officer, did emphasize when they were talking to Caitlin Durbin that just because the county can borrow that money doesn't mean it should. So they do get that, especially if you don't know how it's going to be repaid. And they said that they're committed to striking a balance between affordability and capacity. And right now, you know, how the jail would be paid is is really kind of a question mark you know i love so. i love them saying we can afford it if we get more taxes that'd be like you go in to, <laughs> to the bank to get no really you go in to borrow money for a mortgage and they look at your income and they say well you know you can afford twice as much but go double your income i mean it, it, they, they don't have that income they're going to have to raise taxes and that's where you come into play chris I mean, doubling my <laughs> income <laughs> and it's just it's a preposterous thing you shouldn't be anywhere close to your debt ceiling. Nobody operates like that. I mean, it's just one of those that you, you watch this. The taxpayers are fed up. They don't want to pay more taxes in this county. They're just fed up with it. And for them to talk about debt ceilings and, and affordability, and it's just mind-boggling to me the way they discuss this. I, 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 we, should, we didn't do it in the story. What is, what is $1.5 billion spread out over every resident in the county? No. <laughs> it's a lot oh, of money. You know, and, it's, <laughs> and it's not the county's money. It's our money. That's our debt. Because we live in this county, they just keep saddling people with more and more debt, and no one is looking out for them. I, it, it, it's one where you sit back, listen to these guys talk like it's just monopoly cash, and it's not. It's our money that they're squandering on silly things like the medical mart. It's today in Ohio. 
We talked yesterday about several enlightened steps taken by the Cleveland City Council during its marathon session Wednesday, but there's one more. Courtney, what did the council do with regard to police body camera footage? We had talked about this proposal a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, but city council officially signed off this week on this ordinance that requires the city to release within seven days video footage of police shootings or other uses of deadly force by police, anything where they cause serious physical harm or, or could cause serious physical harm. And this model's af- this law is modeled after an Akron law where we saw that really come into play in the, the June death of Jalen Walker. Akron police were mandated to release that video within seven days, and I think I saw they released it within six. You know, so Councilman Mike Polensic, he's kind of the one carrying the charge on this, and he's described this as an insurance policy, a step towards transparency. People can see the details for themselves, and and hopefully you know, it gives people the information they need early on in the process instead of having to wait prolonged periods for the city to release these videos. I think this is going to create an entirely new kind of press conference for the police department. When Normally, when they release records, they hand them over, but they're going to want to spin this. So I bet when they start to release these, if it's controversial, you're going to have the police chief trying to tell you you don't see what your eyes are seeing, that they won't just hand them over. They're going to try and narrate you through because they're going to be nervous. That's what they did in Akron when they released it. They had a big honking press conference to talk about what people were seeing. Be interesting to see if that's what happens here. It's today in Ohio. Ohio's health department has come up with a policy for dealing with its limited supply of monkeypox vaccine. And Lisa, the upshot is you and I won't be getting it anytime soon. Who's first in line? Well, yeah, the Ohio Department of Health is rationing its supply of the Genios vaccine to prevent severe cases. So they've instituted a three-tier priority system. So in the first tier, People who have had immediate direct contacts with monkeypox patients, they're going to get that vaccine, and they want to do this to contain the outbreak. Then the second phase, which they're working on now, is outreach to gay and bisexual men via uh, LGBTQ organizations in Cleveland, Columbus, and Cincinnati to inform them of the limited supply. And then the third phase, which they're working towards, is to allow access to vaccines before exposure, but they're not there yet due to limited supply. So what happened was is that the FDA, because of this limited supply, they've granted emergency use guidance to use Genios not as a subcutaneous injection, which means it goes through the the skin and the fat into the muscle, but they're doing it intradermal. So it's just under the skin. And they're doing that because that requires only one-fifth the dose of a subcutaneous injection. So they're trying to stretch the supply as much as they can. Um, uh, Ohio Department of Health Director, Dr. Bruce Vanderhoff says, Vanderhoff says that Ohio only had 4,254 doses to start with, but it's a two dose regimen. So cut that in half. So only about 2,100 people would be helped. They're going to get 5,440 more doses this week and more coming soon. 
do we have any idea when it will be generally available to anybody who wants it? Is it a year away? Six I don't know away? that they've given a timeline. I, I know that they're manufacturing it, you know, they're, but they're focusing on the, the most affected, you know, population right now. 99% of the people who have requested a monkeypox vaccine are men. 94% have had intimate, close sexual contact with other men. So they're still focusing on that population, but it doesn't mean it's going to stay in that population. As we know, diseases don't discriminate. So, um, but they have found in Ohio, there have been 75 confirmed cases so far. Um, they are all clustered around large cities, Columbus, Cincinnati, and Cleveland. I wonder if the, the schools are going to be sending parents advice. There's a fear that once kids all get together in the schools, it could spread there fairly quickly. And I wonder, the schools are well tuned up for for distancing and helping kids avoid viruses. I wonder if there'll be some advice given to try and stop it there. Because if, if it starts to spread in schools, then kids are going to become first in line for this, and there's just not enough. The, uh, the state also says it's going to eventually have a dashboard that lays out what the status is in Ohio, the way they did the dashboard for the coronavirus. But that sounds like it might be a month away. It's today in Ohio. How much money does Ohio have left of the $5.4 billion it received in American Rescue Act dollars? And where is the bulk of it gone, Courtney? Yeah, about uh, one third is left. <clears throat> about one third is left. Two thirds is already out the door. Ohio spent $3.5 billion of its $5.4 billion in ARPA money. And this tallying comes from a couple nonprofits who are trying to track the state's ARPA dollars. It's really interesting to see how the states use this big chunk of money already. The largest single expense has been a $1.5 billion repayment to the federal government for an un unemployment loan that was granted during the pandemic. The second largest expense was um, about $500 million in community grants for the Appalachian part of the state. And then $400 million, the third largest expense, is going to that Intel chip plant outside of Columbus that we've been hearing a lot about. So those are like the three top, top tier ones. There's also been significant chunks of money set aside for sewer improvements, for crime labs, for mental health services, for first responders, parks and trails, school security, and a handful of other things. So they didn't take six million and give it six million each to everybody in the legislature to squander as they saw fit. Uh, no slush funds at the state house <laughs> with this money so far. You know, I, okay. I think it, I think it's interesting. These this advocacy group that collected this data kind of identified some needs where they've pointed out where the state money hasn't gone to. The Ohio Poverty Law Center wants to see some of the remaining money be dedicated for broadband expansion, housing assistance, and food assistance. They say those needs are ongoing and they hope the state pitches in. Yeah, although the state spending seems like it's been focused on areas that, that really it needed to be. It, you can't point yet to irresponsible spending, although Lucas Deprile will be on the prowl to see so, see if they do. He's our stimulus watch reporter. It's today in Ohio. 
A Wadsworth-based agency received almost $2 million in grants this week to do something that seems like a basic need, but until now has been an unmet need. Lisa, this question has been on our charts for a couple of days now. It's an important service that's going to be created. What is NeoRide going to do? The U.S. Department of Transportation gave $1.8 million to NeoRide, which is based in Wadsworth, Ohio. It serves disabled uh, commuters in Cuyahoga, Summit, Portage, Medina, Mahoning, and Erie counties. They want to use this to create innovative technology to improve services, not only in those areas, but across county lines. So they want to create what's called an easy connect system that will have regional call centers that riders can use to book trips across county lines for jobs, medical care, and education purposes. There's a lot of demand out there for this service, and they want to phase this project in over the next five years. NeoRide Director Catherine Conrad says they first want to develop a common phone line and a website to help dispatch these paratransit vehicles to where they're needed most. NeoRide is a group of transit agencies in Ohio, Kentucky, Michigan, and Arkansas. And actually, NeoRide developed Northeast Ohio's Easy Fare system. So they already have a grip on technology and commuter technology. So yeah, this is good news for people who need paratransit. Yeah, I just wasn't aware that if you needed paratransit to go to another county, you were out of luck that they only stayed within their own county. So if you needed to go to the Cleveland Clinic from Jaga County, their paratransit couldn't take you. That's a pretty serious deficiency. I It's kind of, you you look at it and think, how did that happen? But the good news is they're going to fix it and they're getting money to do it. It's a major, major story for people that need those services. It's today in Ohio. All right, Leila, I actually put this question here as your segue to your week off because I think you'll be there. (laughs) What is the wild mouse and why should lovers of Cedar Point be excited about it? Yeah, we probably are going to go to Cedar Point next week. Susan Glazer reports that this ride they're opening in 2023, Wild Mouse, is going to be part of a major retheming of Cedar Point's midway area near the beach that they're calling the Boardwalk. This Boardwalk area is supposed to be a reimagining of what the classic Cedar Point Boardwalk would have felt like a long time ago, like the sights and the sounds and the electricity of the experience. And Wild Mouse is a reimagining of a coaster that lived in the park during the 50s and and early 60s. It's a 52-foot tall ride with six mouse-themed cars and one cheese-themed car. And riders would enjoy spins and dips and drops and hairpin turns along a 1,300-foot track. Uh, But there's one way that this modern version of Wild Mouse is different from the original. And as soon as I read this... This is a non-starter for me, even though I love coasters. (laughs) The cars will spin 360 Mm. degrees as they navigate the track. Mm. Nope. Hard pass. Mama doesn't do the spinning rides. So that sounds dreadful. I cannot imagine a worse roller coaster in the park, but maybe some people love to just dizzy themselves up as they fly around a track. But In addition to the new coaster, the boardwalk is going to have a bunch of other features. They're going to relocate. I can't believe they're going to relocate the Matterhorn. I I thought the Matterhorn was, I get maybe they've moved the Matterhorn all over the park. Um, And the Scrambler, and they're going to recall, they're going to rename that the Atomic Scrambler for some reason. That's strange. Um, And um, the Tiki Twirl is going to revert back to its previous name, the Calypso. Um, There must be some, some branding things going on there. 
Uh, but th- there's also, you know, the Dodge on those are the, uh, the bumper cars and the gatekeeper uh, is is a, a great coaster in that part of the park. There's no word yet on the fate of the Top Thrill Dragster. That's, of course, the 420-foot-tall 400, roller coaster that was shut down last August after that huge accident when a Michigan woman was severely injured by part of the, the speeding coaster that, that you know flew off and hit her in the head. The Dragster has remained shuttered this entire season, so who knows what will happen with, with, that, with that ride. Uh, yeah, it's no odd that they weren't prepared to to talk about that at all. We had run a feature sometime in the last few years with a bunch of photos of the old Cedar Point going way back. And, and people were fascinated with it. It was very popular because it had all of that kind of sideshow featurey stuff that you were discussing. And I wonder if this is to tap into it. Uh, Lisa, you're the only one that that would have been around these parts back when the wild mouse was out there. Did you ever go out to Cedar Point when the wild mouse was? No, we went to Geauga Lake because it was closer. (laughs) I think I went to Cedar Point once as a kid. My dad always spoke lovingly of that coaster, so I was pretty um, I was pretty happy to see that name come back and. I'm really pleased just as a Sandusky native of Cedar Point, I grew up on it. I, I think it's really cool that they're really amping up the boardwalk, that that place has been getting some more love in the past few years. And the fact that they're trying to tap into that nostalgia on the beach with the rides there and stuff is really, it's really kind of fun to me. So I can't you were- imagine what it was like to grow up there. <laughs> Courtney, like when I picture somebody growing up in Sandusky, like, I just imagined, like, did you go to preschool in Cedar Point? Like, that's just like how I imagined, like, your whole world must be just surrounded by Cedar Point. It's just such a huge presence in, in that in that town. I mean, pretty dominating. Yeah. You know, we'd go down to the park for a couple hours after school on weeknights. Holy mackerel. That's like where we would go hang out at the mall and you would go hang out at Cedar Point. <laughs> So, that is Courtney, the coolest. your dad, when he would be talking to you and you'd be talking about roller coasters, he would say, yeah, but y- you missed out. The Wild Mouse, that was the great one. Oh, yeah. I mean, he'd get nostalgic on all the old rides. And I know their names well because of his recollections. And that, that wow. was one that stuck out to me. What's another one that he uh, that he speaks nostalgically of? Let's see, I hear you references can... to the Avalanche. I know that's a good one. Um, oh, Avalanche Run? Yes. I remember that one from the 80s. Do you? Okay, maybe that's a little that more That was my recent. first coaster. I remember it. Fun. Oh, my gosh. There's others. Okay, well, <laughs> there you go. Big things coming. Layla, have a good time. It's Today in Ohio. That wraps up a week of discussion of the news. Come on back Monday for more. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Courtney. Thank you, Layla. Thank you for listening. 